0: Oh hey, it's Jesse here, coming in to tell you that maybe you should submit a blog to Lonely Conservationists. Because listen, you've been listening to the podcast for a bit, you've heard all the amazing blogs in this season, and you've learned so much about different people's perspectives of what it is to be a conservationist. But you know what's missing? Your story, and I really want to hear it. So if you head on over to the website at lonelyconservationist.com There's a page for submitting your story, there's story prompts if you get stuck, and there's literally nothing to stop you from telling your story and representing your experience in the conservation world. Not even your pesky imposter syndrome, because look, it's okay if you're a student, it's okay if you're not a paid professional conservationist because so many of us aren't anyway. And your story and your experience is important for us to be able to share what you're going through so we can help you out. Your story is another piece of the puzzle as to why we should be conserving conservationists in the first place. So head on over to the website, tell me your story, and maybe you'll be in a podcast episode in the future. Who knows? But I can't wait to read it. Until then though, let's head into the podcast. Hello, and welcome to How to Conserve Conservationists, the podcast, season two, all about you. My name is Jessie. And I'm Todd. I think I stumbled in that. My name. <laughs> one day we'll do a good intro. But anyway, this <laughs> <laughs> this week is episode eight. We're almost at the end. Savor these episodes, for they are running out. But this one in particular is about natural disasters. A uh, really unfortunate time if you're in the field and everything in nature goes completely wrong. Like God stands up, puts his big trident down, and it's like chaos and you're like ah um, and it's quite unfortunate <laughs>
1: <laughs> as you can yeah that's putting it lightly
0: yeah uh, it's the end of the weekend todd and i are quite exhausted but nonetheless we're going to persevere we have donuts waiting for us as a reward so let's go on talk about natural disasters come along with us so two blogs we're going to be talking about Sarah and Jessica. And Sarah's natural disaster is a tsunami, and Jessica's is the bushfires from Australia. Uh, it is
1: so weird just you're, you're speaking about this as if you're talking to primary school, kindergarten.
0: <laughs> that's, that's how I roll. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> the kindergarten teacher of the day. Todd and I actually just record, tried to record this podcast for like two seconds, but I kept talking in a kindergartner voice. It just wasn't working for me. This is a very serious subject. It's still bleeding through. (laughs) It's a very serious subject, and I want to give it the gravitas that it deserves. It's a bit serious. Um, But at the same time, apparently, the way I communicate with people is by being a primary school teacher. (laughs) So let's let Sarah do the talking. Um, Sarah's blog talks about how she went on a scuba trip with her parents to Thailand, and they all wanted to get certified as scuba people scuba divers that's the one (laughs) and um, basically they had such a good time they loved the marine life so much um and the coral and everything that they decided to go back for christmas so they had planned this lovely christmas holiday where they spent a lot of time sightseeing scuba diving seeing all the rainbow fish and the coral she
1: talked about seeing like a mama shark with her babies just hanging out
0: yeah, really cute.
1: Which I, I don't, the picture of sharks being maternal.
0: <laughs> well, Maybe that's
1: just a stereotype.
0: Some sharks lay eggs and some sharks, like hammerheads, have live births. So you have tiny little hammerheads. I know. Sharks are very diverse and very cute. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're diverse, but all of them are cute. Yeah,
0: they're all cute. Even the big ones. <laughs> um, I was snorkeling in Thailand once and I was struck by the rainbowness of the fish. I thought there was an official word for the rainbowness of things. I was like, the rainbossity. A wide spectrum of color. Yeah, it's like you're snorkeling through this amazing clear water and it's just like every fish is a different color of the rainbow and it's like phenomenal. I've never seen that before. So it just takes... You by surprise almost how beautiful and colourful the marine life is. There. It
1: sounds really magical until she mentions like baby jellyfish were trying to eat her face oh, yeah. the whole time.
0: Well, that's the thing. If like the jellyfish spores are like stingy. they're like a little bit stingy.
1: She's like, why do my face and hands sting?
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's what happens when you go to Queensland. There's like specific beaches that you can go to and can't go to. And they have like jelly nets that are up. So... I just got my hair caught in my necklace. (laughs) Okay, everything's fine. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, they went back for their Christmas break with the premise that they were going to have a really lovely time together, keep scuba diving. I think that's really beautiful as a family to be able to have a a hobby of scuba diving because whenever I want to go snorkeling, nobody wants to come with me. (laughs) I have to... Like, when I moved to Melbourne, I was so thankful to have friends that cared about snorkeling and, like, wanted to come with me because... Like, it's just hard to find people that wanted to just spend time with fish. Um, so often Todd gets dragged on.
1: <laughs> I've gone snorkelling and enjoyed it. But everywhere you take me is always, like, browned next to a sewage outlet. <laughs> You're like, this is where the most interesting fish are. Like, oh, it's gross, though.
0: I actually took Todd to a marine sanctuary where I have snorkeled at quite a few times, and it's always been amazing. I've seen, like, banjo sharks, so many sea stars, so many fish. And then I take Todd and the tide was out because obviously I'm smart and I didn't check. And so <laughs> it was like you couldn't swim many places without worrying about scraping your belly on the seagrass. And like, I don't like scraping my belly on the seagrass. I think this is why some people dive, is because they get there's so much depth of water and they can choose where they go. But snorkeling it's like you're at the mercy of how deep the water is.
1: I've never been so claustrophobic in the ocean before. <laughs> It's usually the opposite feeling. Especially
0: when you see, like, gnarly big sea stars and you're like, I do not want you grazing my belly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that was my biggest fear in the ocean, but now let's talk about what happened to Sarah. Um, She says, After six days of diving, snorkeling, and relaxing on the beach, we were due to fly back home. Our flight was in the afternoon, so my mum and I had planned to go down to the beach and do some snorkeling before we left. Unfortunately, yet fortunately, I slept in. My mum came to my room around eight to tell me that she and my dad were going to get breakfast. I decided to skip it and hop in the shower. After the shower, I was busy blow drying my hair when suddenly the power went out. I thought it was a bit strange and begun to look around the room and figure out uh, if it was just the blow dryer or the whole room that had, be- that had blown. That's when I heard it. If you've ever been to a large waterfall, you'll know the sound. I walked out of my room and saw thousands of gallons of water rushing down the narrow street i heard the cracking of tree branches as the water pushed past and yet somehow the island was completely silent it's pretty eerie
1: it's weird right yeah it's It's not a normal thing that happened in your day
0: so basically because her parents were out all their stuff was downstairs so the water was up to her knees she went down tried to collect the passports and anything she could grab and bring them upstairs. And just salvaged as much as she could. Because as you remember, she's separated from her parents at this point.
1: It's crazy to me that that was her reaction. Like, I can't tell if that's, like, a really level-headed reaction of, like, oh, in a practical sense, like, we probably need our passports. Well, they're in a different But also, like, my goodness, it's it's a disaster. Like, save yourself first. Don't worry about any earthly possessions.
0: Mm, I think, like she must have felt comfortable that she had the ability in, to cut cause she yeah. talks about the t- it rushing in and rushing out. So yeah. it was up to her knees. She tried to grab whatever, but then it went out to her ankles basically. So it was like, is this one wave or if, is this going to keep going? Like if, is this one hit of damage or is it going to keep pulsing in and out? Yeah.
1: You can't know. And like what's going on, like yeah. in hindsight, the airport's probably destroyed and like you're not gonna need that passport for a while like no one's gonna have that
0: airport wasn't destroyed (laughs) it was was it everything
1: was destroyed
0: in the whole of thailand like a a wave washes over the entire country
1: i don't know if you know how big the boxing day (laughs) tsunami was
0: well from sarah's story of going home obviously they were able to get home
1: well, They got hope eventually, yeah, but like, it wasn't. I think. Don't, leave your passports if you're in a plane crash. Leave your stuff in the plane. Not the just same escape. As a plane crash, it's exactly the same.
0: Well, nonetheless, we digress. <laughs> Sarah, feel free to to give us any extra information about why Todd doesn't know anything about being in a tsunami. <laughs> um, she mentions how. It, during this time when she was in the hotel room she was noticing all the colorful fish she'd seen snorkeling now wash up all on the floor of her room which would have been a bit confronting like you just going into their environment and swimming around with them and now all of a sudden they're washed up on your floor it would have been like really weird and disturbing
1: <laughs> it would have been like oh it's not just a burst water main
0: yeah there's actual this fish is what my is going room, on here. My floor. so she says Uh, My parents managed to find a way back to our rooms and found me. Still trying to grasp the reality of what just happened, my mum is a registered nurse and she'd done work in rural areas that have had natural disasters before. She knew that if we didn't get to the airport immediately, we would be stuck in Thailand with limited resources, possibly for weeks. See, the airport's fine. You need to get to the airport.
1: (laughs) No, but (laughs) she doesn't know that then.
0: Her mum knew. She knew. Well,
1: that's... (laughs) Mums always know.
0: They always know. Um, At this point, the water had receded around our ankles and it was much easier to move around. We began to make our way to the main road, walking around the narrow, narrow street that 20 minutes earlier had been easily four feet deep in water. As we were walking, we began to hear a rumbling sound growing louder and louder. We ran up a set of stairs to the roof of our hotel. When we looked down, the devastation and destruction were immense. There was debris everywhere. Cars turned over and smashed, buildings destroyed, trees cracked in half, sand covering everything. There were several other people on the roof, all in just as much shock as we were. We stood in silence and watched the second wall of water forcing its way through the town, bringing bringing down everything with it in its path." Insane. Because I have this fear of being trapped, right? So I don't know if I would have gone to the top of the building but had this fear that everything below me will crumble and I can't escape because I'm on the top of a building. Like you can't. What, yeah. Down. What if the building gets knocked over Like yeah. Like what if the 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 what are the things called the hold up building the slats? No. Like like does yeah. the framework of the building? What if it crumbled with the pressure of the wave, and you're just on the top of the building? Like, but what are you gonna do? Like there's water covering like everything. So you're screwed <laughs> if you go down. But well, also like. That's
1: the horror of every disaster, right? Like, yeah. You can't know what the best thing to do is because it's such a chaotic and random event.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is another natural disaster. But I I used to work with somebody that um, her two daughters died in the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires and her son only survived by climbing under his Ute, which is like his truck or whatever you call it, his utility vehicle, <laughs> the car with the tray in the back um, anyway. He survived by climbing under his ute, but that's only because the fire must have moved past over the car quick enough for the oxygen to stay under the under ute. So, like, that like, would Yeah, that's not a foolproof land. No, so that worked for him, but easily couldn't have worked. But in that moment, he just did the only option that he could have done. Yeah. And that metal would have been smouldering as well, like, trying to get out from under the ute without touching it. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just like, is it pretty much a well, she talks
1: about like yeah they're on the roof and they're like well let's go down and then like get up to the mountains but like the other people on the roof are like well don't go down you'll get washed away in the ocean yeah like but like what do you do
0: yeah you just have to make snap decisions that feel right at the time so basically um the next part about that after she was on the roof everything is a blur except for she imagines giving some first aid because as she said her mum's a nurse, so they stopped to help some people. Then they got in a taxi, and the scary part was they had to head towards the wave to get to the airport. So the, Just, yeah, to yeah. get onto the road. So to get onto the road, they had to head towards the uh, towards the wave, but when they finally got to the road, then they could go uphill and get to the airport.
1: The bloody cheeky taxi driver Trying to pulls up them. and he's like, oh, we we'll take us to the hills quick. He's like, 100 bucks. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Just haggling over the price. about the Chris. Come on, man. 20 bucks.
0: A- wave, wave is literally incoming. He has a position of power there, for sure. <laughs> He's a smart man.
1: She... Ah, oh, man. Well, yeah. What, what a hustler, taxi driver. <laughs> <laughs> Making the best of the situation.
0: Yeah. So, basically, uh, Sarah and her family got home safe. But then Sarah was pretty much distraught with survivor's guilt after that. I think it hit her, the privilege of, like being able to escape, thank God she got the passports, thank God that they made it out in the split second um, onto the road before the wave hit again. Um, she just was so thankful she was alive, but at the same time it was so disheartening that she'd seen all this loss, this wreckage, this chaos, and she survived. And so she had to seek mental health help um, because of this because it was such an incident that, like, well, obviously it messes you up.
1: I need to know how useful the passport was. Well, they
0: got home. That's I how useful it I need the listeners to know
1: if you if you ever question, like, where's your passport? A valid answer is I was in a natural disaster and I don't have it anymore. That is, is a valid answer. Is it?
0: Yes. Well, they didn't even have to have that conversation because they had their passport. So... <laughs> i'm sorry sarah that todd is bickering with you vicariously through this podcast no
1: i'm just i can't tell if it's genius or like an example of how you have to make snap snap decisions
0: yeah you do like anything you can't really know if you're making the right decision you just have to you only have a short amount of time to make a decision so you just have to do what you gotta do yeah
1: yeah it's like people like you wake up and your house is burning and you might be like oh shit i i just have to quickly go back in and rescue my uh xbox or something <laughs> you know something something that seems silly yeah but like in that moment for some reason you're like oh shit i need to quickly save it
0: i didn't save my game <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think passports and an xbox are very different like in your mind i can imagine if i was sarah i'd be like we can't leave this country mm. unless we have our passport. Like, it's ingrained you can. in you. Don't lose your passport. You can, From, from a very, like, what yeah. you... When you're a traveller, keeping track of your passport is, like, the most primary thing that you do. So that's probably the first thing you think of. Oh, my passport.
1: It's not for me, though. I
0: know, because you never... Okay, let's not go into... <laughs> this is not a couples debate podcast we're talking about natural disaster okay so basically this experience inspired Sarah to become a marine biologist because she saw all the wreckage and destruction that happened to that marine environment it really inspired her to go back home and to conserve some of the marine environments around her local area in hopes that her conservation efforts would have a ripple effect into all the other oceans so it's crazy that like This would have scarred some people and they never would have gone into the ocean again.
1: I could easily believe that and understand that.
0: Yeah, so it was pretty insane that this uh, crate, like the time the ocean tried to kill Sarah was the moment she's like, "Mm, I want to save you. The rest of my life is devoted to saving you. (laughs) I don't know. It's a pretty, it's a horrifying, but because she survived, I guess that makes it a cool origin story. (laughs) (laughs) It's, yeah. Yeah, but, like, it's crazy because a lot of people are like, oh, how did you be inspired to be a conservationist? Oh, I watched Steve Irwin growing up. Oh, I used to play outside with sticks. And Sarah's just like, I survived a tsunami. Pretty gnarly.
1: And I knew that day. I needed vengeance on the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Jessica's story is about the bushfires that happened last summer in 2019, 2020, where it was, like, the most insane, biggest bushfires. I
1: mean, probably could have used a tsunami at that point.
0: Yeah, we could have. <laughs> the tsunami could have put out a lot of fires. Um, the Her first sentence of the blog is really powerful, so I just wanted to read that. She goes, My name is Jessica Leck, and as I write this, my hometown is on fire. I live on the mid-north coast of Australia, and this week has seen an area roughly seven times greater than the Amazon. Fires burn across my home state." So mm. how, when I read that, it, like, I know because I was living in Australia. Well, I am living in Australia. At the time I'm in Australia, too, I see the hazy smoke outside. It's too dangerous to leave the house because, like, the the toxins in the atmosphere are too intense. Like, I can see the fires, but f- when I read it, I was like, oh, her hometown is on fire and she's writing this blog. It's very powerful stuff. Because she was writing it in an evacuation center. Yeah. Yeah. Um so basically um Jessica always knew she wanted to be a conservationist and she ended up going to uni for 8 years doing all these internships um it's all these degrees story. because she's like you heard me right if you want to get a graduate position in Australia this is how hard you need to work and I was like thank you <laughs> yeah. because i always feel really bad complaining about not being able to be a conservationist in Australia because I think like we have this reputation of being a country with a lot of opportunities and it's like we're a westernized country we're pretty well off as a nation but to like I have had to spend like decades of my life trying to get into the industry and I understand that it's like not as easy as people make it out to be it's not like Oh, yeah, do a couple of volunteer jobs and you'll get experience and you'll get in. No, it's like understandable why um, Jess had to do eight years of university. But she ended up getting her third graduate job. She says that she's very fortunate enough to get um, this opportunity, but she ended up in the city, in Sydney, uh, working as a junior ecologist. And it looked like she was living the dream, basically. It's like, She had the $60,000 salary. She had the desk job in a high-rise building.
1: below median wage.
0: (laughs) But for a conservationist, like, that's, like, more than double what I'm going to earn with my new job. (laughs) 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 Not that i would be working full-time hours, but... The
1: new job that makes you feel like you've also made it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, But, yeah. So everyone was asking her like how do i get a job like this blah 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 but yeah. when her partner came to her and said look i've got a job opportunity in a more uh, rural town she was like yeah i'm quitting my job let's go for it so it was something that <laughs> i'm not
1: attached to this yeah
0: something that drew her away from that opportunity um well just
1: not you explain like a lot of the job was like doing ecology and stuff but at the end of the day it's like yes you're authorized to like clear this land
0: yeah <laughs> yeah so it's not like the stuff that you dream of as a kid being in a college. You don't
1: really feel like you're saving the environment.
0: Yeah. So uh luckily enough she ends up getting a oh I love it. She talks about being the most overqualified housewife in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> in that More so town. than you. Um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um she was lucky enough to get a lecturer job at a local university and she was just starting to make a dent. In the environmental education of that town, uh, because she's very right wing. I mean, left wing. And she's very environmental. But as we've talked about in other podcasts, when you're in like a smaller town and it's more rural, you often have more con- like a more conservative uh, culture. And sometimes the answers to problems is just like, oh, let's just clear the land, let's just churn the soil. So she was finally making a dent in this. And she goes on to say, and yet I sit here in an evacuation center while our homes burned around us, not listening to the discussions of climate scenarios and mitigation. Instead, my ears are flooded with the beginnings of a terrifying, irresponsible ecological demand, clear felling borders, grazing national parks, while further in the distance, the anti-greens mentality is being further cemented with misinformation. I know every tree I have planted and every shrub I have preserved are now in charcoal, and I hold deep fear that they will be replaced with the security of grazing land. The ecological value I have spent these months communicating to the landowners represents nothing but fire risk to them now. In a region where the far right wing conservatives run opposed every term, I am now finding there is only room for any there's only room for my ideas when all other variables are able to remain the same. I wonder, is this mentality regression, or is this mentality regression an aspect of po- of a positive feedback ci- cycle missed by some scientists? Sorry, I'm just butchering your words, Jeff. Um, am I getting this right? Right wing is not the conservative one, right?
1: Uh, right wing is normally yeah the more conservative. Oh, right wing. Let's is keep the... things status quo.
0: Oh, and sorry, I said that Jeff was really right wing.
1: I would consider her left wing. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I think I said Jess is right wing. That was a mistake. She is left wing. I heard you say that. Why didn't didn't, you correct me? I didn't want to interrupt. (laughs) So um, she was talking about that the community is very right wing, very conservative, and she has opposing views to that. I accidentally misread. Sorry. (laughs) I like misspoke, but then I convinced myself that I had read it. So I had to just check just in case. I didn't want to label Jess's political... Preferences or something that they weren't. But then I ended up doing that anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I think, yeah, she described herself as a uh, greenie, greens party, sort of politically minded.
0: Environmentalist person. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that would be so challenging because in Australia, it's so hard to change farmers and, like, like land owners' minds about things. Like, no matter... How much you think they're a great person and Well that's not a
1: stereotype, it's hard to change anyone's mind about something. Yeah, but
0: like for instance, so there's this old woman that I love to bird with on her property, and she's really great, we bird together, we follow each other on Instagram, like each other's birds, but when I go over her house to bird, she talks about how she'll always vote uh with the liberals who are our conservatives because they just know the right thing for the economy and how is like, screwing everything up. So...
1: It's it's all very superficial. Like, the moment that you call yourself left or right wing, like, obviously, you haven't paid attention to, like, the actual details. The
0: intricacies of what's going on.
1: Yeah. Like... <laughs>
0: yeah. So it's it's challenging because, like, a lot of my job for the past couple of years has been showing people the logging coops around Victoria. So basically, uh, Victoria has a deal, a pulp agreement with a Japanese company called Nippon. And we're contractually obliged to give a lot of our native mountain ash trees, which are the second tallest tallest flowering tree in the world. Um, And this agreement was made years and years ago but now because of all the clear felling and the logging, there's not a lot of these trees left less than five years of these trees remain, but the contract is still like a contract. Like they still have to keep providing these trees and logging the land when there's not a lot of habitat left. So it's really frustrating. When you talk to people who are like, Oh yeah, like land clearing would give us the money. Land clearing's the option. Oh, there's fires. We'll just clear the land really. it
1: it was it was sparked from um yeah the the right-wing politicians they tried to say that all the bushfires were the result of all the green environmentalists Mm -hmm. who wanted to have lots of forests everywhere
0: didn't trump say a similar thing in america when after the california fires like just clear the forest floor if we have
1: no more forests. there's no more forest fires (laughs) which is like i guess it's the solution technically to forest fires (laughs)
0: so really what should be happening is so the first nations people of australia um they managed the land for years with controlled burns and the way they managed the land was so in harmony that there was basically no out-of-control fires not like this because there wasn't like huge patches of dry land because they would keep the ecosystem intact so there was enough water and things were like Everything was done in a controlled way, and they only took what they needed, um, and worked within the confines of the natural environmental uh, systems and and the way things worked. I was gonna
1: say it's very weird how it's it's shaken out because even like uh, modern farmers, they they are very aware of the land and very aware of the climate and the effects of all this stuff. Like, so you'd think they would be much more environmentally conscious than the political
0: yeah stereotypes suggest because i i went to this training course for the wilderness society and they showed this advertisement for uh the liberal party and it was basically like we're a long line of farmers and we care about farmers so if you're a farmer we're on your side and it's just like propaganda
1: (laughs) well that's yeah the answer to the the paradox is it's all fake, yeah. Propaganda and marketing, yeah. And it's not. They don't actually help farmers at all, yeah. So, which I think farmers
0: have always known. It's crazy because if you haven't seen Twenty Forty, see Twenty Forty because it's a really solution-based documentary. Yeah, by an Australian documentary person, documentarist, <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> um, basically. He's really great, and I was like, I only saw it because I thought people would expect me to have seen it and make commentary on it. But it turned out to be amazing because it actually is a solution-based documentary. And during the documentary, it talks about this um, this farm where they the family the family like to go fishing. And so one day they're like, Oh, let's go out into the paddock and find a worm so we can go out and catch fish. That day they couldn't find a single worm. And then they're like, hmm, if there's no worms in the soil, our soil must be un- unhealthy. What can we do to get more worms in the soil? And then it started uh, on this journey of, um, what is it called? When you farm, you know the farming. <laughs> what? <laughs> the, uh, what is it called? Oh, my God. Permaculture. Where you use like, you have your crops, but then you also have plants that are supposed to be uh, planted in the area, which gets the soil all nice with hydrogen and it gets things moving. So you have a row of crops, a row of like native plants and you alternate them. So it improves the soil health. So, um, it was a good example of how like those farmers only acted when it was really, really necessary. But also, I don't know if they had the prior educate, like if there's, if farming is uh, a bunch of information passed on from generation to generation, and there might have been an abundance of water and abundance of resources back in the day, the approach to farming needs to change. Mm. But if it's just a family business and you've always done it this way, that is not going to be in correlation with the farming practices that need to uh, happen to give you the highest yield in present time.
1: They do have schools for farmers. You went to one.
0: Yeah, I went to an agricultural school, but it yeah. doesn't mean... That's where
1: they go. That's where they learn all this, like, technical details of what chemicals sort soil needs and stuff. We did learn that, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, okay, so they have no excuse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's the problem. Like, instead of pumping the soil with chemicals, just plant proper plants there. Oh,
1: yeah, so when you go to school, they're like, what you want to do is put a nice layer of Roundup <laughs> and then plant your seeds and boom, maximum uh, growth, maximum profits.
0: Yeah, because we didn't get told about sustainable farming at all at school. That's not something we were taught. Yeah, because there's there's a lot of sides to farming. There's like the economic side to farming, but also you can farm a lot of things. Like you can shear sheep, you can do aquaculture, you can have a packer farm. (laughs) Like there's so much you can have. You can yeah, there's (laughs) and like you, if you have a pig pen, you might not have a lot of paddocks. So how you farm pigs is very different from how you farm cows and dairy cows and meat cows are very different. I can believe all this. Yeah, so it's like it's hard when you're doing five years of school and you might only do agriculture for like two or three years how do you there's no like specialist class for the exact type of agriculture that you're going to be doing i think there
1: also is i know my friend at a family owned a winery mm -hmm. and like he went to a tertiary class for like how to farm grapes to make wine yeah, we
0: made wine in class
1: yeah, that's a big crop in Australia. We had
0: to pick the grapes. I swear, sometimes we're like free manual labor. Okay, kids, for this agriculture lesson, we're just picking these grapes. We're
1: just doing farm work.
0: <laughs> yeah. um, so, anyway, like, I guess it's like challenging to re educate yourself as a farmer as well. Like, I think COVID has taught a lot of people this. We all think we don't have enough time to do the structural rechanges of things that maybe need to be done. But a lot of time in COVID, when we're able to stop and breathe, a lot of people have started restructuring the way they do things very differently. Like, for instance, at my uh, teaching job, they took that time. We're like, OK, where like okay we can not teach in-person classes. Look, let's look at our material. Let's update the programs. This is needed to happen for ages, but we haven't had the time to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, COVID probably doesn't stop much for farmers. But I think the point I'm trying to make is you might... If, like things just might be go 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 you have such a list of things that need to be done it's hard to sit there and take the time to make a large structural change without facing economic downfalls or like you get less income this month because you've totally changed the way you farm so basically um just says what now
1: did a house burn down then
0: I don't know, she doesn't say. She just said she was in an evacuation center. And that could have meant that her house was destroyed or it could mean that she was just in the evacuation center until it was safe enough to go back well, to the house. I guess,
1: yeah, at time of writing, she also wasn't sure yeah, how exactly. it down or not, which is, yeah, really scary.
0: So, Jess, if you want to update us on how your house are you okay? is, are you okay? Uh, we'll, have you um, heard from her since she posted <laughs> <this? laughs> We'd we'll love to have an update from you. Um, but basically, she ends by saying, what now? Um so she spent all this time trying to educate people the fires came scared them all into clearing land and, and reversing their mindset into being less environmental and she's, yeah
1: well understandably now like anyone with property is like oh a gigantic pile of native vegetation is just you know a matchbox waiting to go yeah
0: um so she said she just has to keep trying like she's always wanted to be a conservationist she was feels it in her blood and she just feels like this is a minor setback but she has to keep persevering because as long as she's educating people, the more there's hope for proper land management and maybe there'll be less fires in the future if the land is managed correctly. Preach it, girl. <laughs> so there's two examples of lonely conservationists who have faced natural disasters, both very different, one very wet, one very dry. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Superficially different.
0: Superficially different,
1: but both... It was it was different in that Sarah... I... It would have been like more stressful. It would have been equally stressful and horrifying. But like she was holidaying there, so eventually she could catch a plane and just leave all that behind. Yeah.
0: Whereas like it was actual Jess's house that she. Well, Jess, yeah, has where, like
1: yeah. her home in Ash.
0: Yeah. Uh, hopefully, it's not a in bit Ash.
1: longer recovery time in a practical way.
0: Yeah. So also, what's different about the blogs is Sarah's was oh, it happened like. while ago so she can reflect on it yeah and jess was in the evacuation center at time of writing in the midst of it so um i they're gonna be different perspectives yeah and i also understand that um jess may have had ongoing traumas from this experience as well and i just want to be respectful of that as as well because like she could have had survivor's guilt equally the same as sarah there could have been the same ongoing um it's really stressful if if you like in the in the moment you're probably living day-to-day and you don't really think about it there's no point thinking long term because you have no idea if you're gonna have a house you might have a house everything might be fine you might have most of your house with a little bit of a room charred off and you have to replace some things you might be homeless like it's hard to think about anything other than what's your immediate move today tomorrow like Mm. what are you doing tonight for dinner (laughs) <laughs> your immediate moves is probably all you can focus on. So I guess it would be interesting now to hear Jeff, what has happened to Jess and what happened with her life since being in this, natu- in this natural disaster.
1: It makes me feel really guilty because during those fires in Queensland, I was actually on holiday there and me and my friend were sitting in a brewery pub bar and just sipping beers while the entire horizon was just black smoke. And I don't know, it felt like it would have made like a sweet album cover or something, but... That was really it was, Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we really uh, relished the uh, horrific irony of the moment.
0: I remember I was, uh, I was in like the back of the Uber to get somewhere with my friend and we couldn't wind the windows down because the smog was so thick. It was like just too toxic to be outside. So basically we had to go from our house to the car to another building with air conditioning, like outside was like it was felt really apocalyptic. And that's why twenty yeah, twenty 2020- You had
1: to wear a mask. Yes. And then COVID happened and we just continued to wear masks. Yeah, so
0: 2020 was very apocalyptic for Australians because like half the country burned down, our mask ran out because of the smoke, and we had to stay indoors because of the smoke. And so then when COVID hit, it was like you need masks and to stay indoors, and we're like, what else is new? Like still. <laughs> what do you mean the fires are just getting like put out what yeah. do you mean yeah. so i think like a lot of people in australia last year were pretty fatigued because it was like uh, and covid also hit a lot of people directly after the fire so some people were homeless and had to now stay indoors when they didn't really have an indoors oh boy anymore. i wish i had an indoor yeah yeah so like this is something i don't know because covid kind of distracted from the fires i don't know if people outside of australia or even like us when we're not in the midst of it, it's hard to remember that like COVID came before the fires had a chance to kind of heal. It came before the fires ended. So people didn't really have time to heal from the fires before COVID hit. And I feel like the government took away a lot of um its, like its eye, everything was about the fires. And as soon as COVID hit, we didn't hear about the money that they'd they said they were going to put towards helping uh, like towns come back, or put yeah, towards biodiversity. It was old news already. By that yeah, stage. so I really feel for those towns and the people who have lost a lot of their livelihoods and never saw any help from the government because enough, like another natural disaster came, like plowing through. Like okay, you've had your attention. Like it's my turn now. Um, so I just want to take a moment to um, pay some respects to everybody who has never caught a break still. Yeah. Um yeah, it must be really challenging to rebuild your life during a global pandemic. There's no amount of preparation that could ever mentally physically prepare you for that happening. Cuz you see pictures of like people being in boats in the middle of the lake surrounded by fire. Or like people just yeah. standing in a lake with a boat over their head.
1: Yeah. It was um like you you're not being hyperbolic saying half the country was on fire. Mm-hmm. but it it was a lot of like yeah like the native bushland like the the wilds just millions Australia. And millions of animals so died. I, I don't know how many yeah a lot of animals and wildlife died i don't know how many people died i know like at least a handful I it s- wasn't it was like relatively relatively a few
0: i saw this thing the other day i don't know how true this is they found, in the midst of the fires, after the fire got put uh, put out, they saw a man in full scuba gear lying in ashes and they what they reckon must have happened is when they dro- they flew the helicopter with the big water tanks and put it in the ocean, and picked up a scuba diver, and then they transported to the fire and dumped him on the fire. that
1: sounds like it can't be real it
0: sounds fake i don't want to
1: believe that apparently
0: it happened so what if there's a big fire don't go scuba diving if there's a tsunami i feel safer in in the water yeah but not if somebody like a helicopter is picking up the water and you get sucked in and dropped over flames it's horrifying (laughs) what the heck i haven't
1: heard this i don't believe it i don't want to
0: (laughs) i'll fact check it and see if it's true Okay, so it turns out that this was a myth, so I'll just read you this article I found that, uh, that talks about the myth, and then what actually happened. So the myth is that a man dressed in scuba gear, wetsuit, mask fins, and a tank was discovered in a cleanup of a Californian forest fire, so not even in Australia. The strangely placed victim, yes, in the branch of a tree, suffered severe burns from the forest fire, however an autopsy revealed that he didn't die from the fire, but from bad internal injuries as you can imagine being dropped from that high. They used the the diver's dental records to identify him and contacted his family in an attempt to find out how he could have ended up there. The family, horrified, said that the victim had set off diving in the sea about 30 meters from the forest on the day the fire got out of control investigators started to piece the information that they'd gathered together. It appeared that the, sub- the scuba diver had accidentally been caught amongst the thousands of gallons of water taken by a heli tanker, which had been called in to help the firefighters put out the forest fire. So caught up in one of the massive buckets of water, the diver had been dumped with the seawater in, attep- in attempt to extinguish the fire as quick as they could. But this is what actually happened. It says, even though the story has been told time and time again since the 1800s, there's never actually been a record of a diver in scuba gear being accidentally dumped by a helicopter tanker on a forest fire. Authorities have pointed out that even though the water tanker is often taken from lakes and the sea in effort to put out forest fires quickly, the heli tankers suck up water by hoses which only measure a couple of inches in diameter so no one can actually be sucked into such a small opening and pulled into the tank. So that is a lesson to me to not believe everything I hear. Okay, back to the podcast. (laughs) Um, So the last segment of the podcast, if we know a conservationist who has experienced a natural disaster, what can we do for these people?
1: Just throw love and support and money at them.
0: Yeah. I think like the survivor's guilt thing is really real i don't think i'd when i was reading sarah's blog i was like oh she got out so good blah blah yeah. and then like when she talked about the survivor's guilt i'll be like oh yeah so she just witnessed like the destruction of a whole town and she gets to like just fly away back to her cushy yeah. life in America. i
1: didn't want to make it sound like she got off lucky because yeah it would be extra weird to have that experience fly back and then be around your normal uh community where no one went through that experience
0: yeah and nobody would probably care and no one relates to you it. no
1: one understands that would be really really like jarring yeah that, that would, would be would... jarring
0: especially because like if you went back to america and nobody's even heard of this tsunami it kind of might cheapen. it was a big deal this time <laughs> it might like cheapen the situation or not cheapen it but make it like you experience something that's so real and graphic and violent and nobody else is even knowing about it like
1: I can imagine like, yeah, friends, you're telling friends about it and they're like, yeah, yeah, not all of us holiday in Thailand all the time, no need to brag.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, it's like the... <laughs> that's my assumption. The second episode ever of the podcast where I was talking about how to communicate with com- uh, conservationists and I was talking about the tiger story, how my parents kind of couldn't comprehend that I was chased by a tiger. So they're like, okay, that's nice, sweetie. It could yeah, be like kind of the same thing or it's like, we can't comprehend that you're in a tsunami. So we're just going to like brush it off
1: (laughs) i imagine that happened a lot yeah
0: so if anybody comes to you and shares that they have been in a natural disaster please just ask what you can do for them if you need to be there for support a listening ear just watch movies with them with a cup of tea just be around them Um, i think being someone that they can rely on for comfort and support in that time is really really important and uh like same with um like jess if she was in an evacuation center and you can ask, like, is there anything I can send you? Do you need any clothes? Do you need any food? Like, how can I help you through this situation? Because the the difference between a tsunami and bushfires is the bushfires went for months. It spanned the end of 2019 to the start of 2020, it was like the whole summer period. A tsunami is kind of instantaneous, but the wreckage is like there for a while while you try and pick stuff up. So I think the way you approach the two situations would be kind of different. The first one will be, what can I do to support you in a like after the fact way? And then in like a bushfire instance, would be like, how can I help you get through this? Because it's like my friend, for instance, um, she had to keep going back and forth, back and forth, evacuation non-evacuation, evacu- like, you never know which, which way the wind will turn. Sometimes you're safe at night. Or sometimes you have to evacuate. Like, mm. it's very unpredictable, and it could be, like, months of toying with your emotions. You're not sleeping because you don't want to, like, fall asleep, and then your house burns down.
1: I remember, yeah, during the bushfires, we actually went on a camping trip for some reason. And so we would check, like, the map, the disaster map, like where the fires were Mm -hmm. did any pop up around us last night like
0: yeah so i think that that we had a small snippet
1: of what it would be like to live in the countryside of australia then
0: that's it goes to show kind of how long it went for that like todd was able to go on holiday and that like (laughs) we also went away for christmas like
1: we like okay, this is a new normal. Half yeah. the country is just always on fire now.
0: Kind of like the pandemic, where it's so horrific, but you cut it just becomes like your life because it goes on for so long. Yeah. Um, I don't think did the bushfire start after you went away, because some places. Yeah,
1: I was on like, I went on like two holidays during the bushfires. Oh my God, <laughs> it feels really wrong if I think about it now.
0: Horrific.
1: Yeah, it was from like November to. I guess january february
0: well i think because you were, you were also working so todd's old job meant he had to travel a lot for work so i think a lot of those trips would be like you had to go for work but some flights i remember being cancelled because of conditions
1: yeah um i know canberra airport was closed a lot of it because there was a fire right next to it yeah right
0: next to the airport and then, like, Todd's ha- uh, old work had a Canberra office and they were basically all evacuated. Like, they couldn't go into work. It was, like... Yeah. It was... It was
1: an afternoon they just had to leave the building because the fire was coming up to them.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing with fires is it's, like, very... It's ongoing and, like, depending on where you are, you're okay. Like, there was one time there was a, a fire, like, uh like, five or ten kilometres away from us. And so I was just kept... Keep monitoring, monitoring the wind monitoring where it was um and then most of the time we're fine so it's very like location dependent so sometimes you can just live normally or sub normally as much as you can and other times it could be a split second and your whole house is on fire so it's just kind of like a long time where you're just on edge but like some people are living normally other people can't (laughs) yeah Because we had to, like, they made all these decisions to cancel fireworks in some areas over New Year's because that would be another fire risk. So it's, like, interesting, like, fireworks celebrations just cancelled, like, an extra year for Australians because they're, like, in COVID. It's I guess that because Australia is doing pretty well with COVID, there was probably, um, there was fireworks and stuff on New Year's, right? Yeah. But just not, there was attendance. In in Melbourne and
1: they have fireworks in the city but you tend not to go into the city to look at it even during normal years yeah you sort of like you can see the city from the rest of suburbia
0: yeah so um if you know someone that's been in a natural disaster cherish them love them offer your help and services and i hope that employees are also very sympathetic like i hope that wherever Sarah was working, I don't. She was probably young at the time and was probably still at school. But if that happened to someone that was in a, a professional career, I hope that, that your bosses understand and let you take like um, like mental health leave or whatever.
1: How much is like Christmas and Boxing Day ruined for Sarah now?
0: Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to hear about that because also it was Christmas time that Jess was in. Uh, the evacuation center, she was one of our last blogs of the year. Mm. So it, like, both of them happen around December. So if you want to travel in December, think about the risk of natural disasters. Australia is the hottest time of the year. In Thailand, it's the wettest time of the year. <laughs>
1: no, I don't know.
0: That, like that's the thing, like natural disasters are freak. You never Fa- know. Famously unpredictable. Yeah, famously unpredictable. Well, lucky we had a really wet year this year. So La Nina come at us. It's been good. Um, what? so like it hasn't been as torturous as last year we've had a bit of a break Um, but yeah just be nice to your fellow conservationists and also if you are a conservationist going away to do field work just be mindful that freak activities could happen if you're a marine biologist uh, check weather warnings for the coast and if you work in the bush just be aware of fire risks on hot days So thank you once again for joining us in our journey about learning more about conservationists. I hope this wasn't a disaster episode to listen to. But if you want to check out more people's blogs, head over to lonelyconservationist.com. Check us out at Lonely conservationists on Instagram, at Lonely Conserve on Twitter, or even consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Conservationist. Um, you can also check out my book if you haven't already, because you know what? I reread it again the other day and it wasn't that bad bit bad in the punctuation but as as far as the content goes I still stand by it so yeah I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week for next week's podcast